This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Good morning. It is morning where I'm at, so I'm going to say that. Can you dig it? I can. Oh, fuck. I'm, I'm really tired. I'm really tired this morning. It was, um, so I've gotten up at, it is a Saturday, by the way. I think these, this is going to be the new uh, standard for recording my podcast now, given the, uh, the new schedule I am acclimating to now that I am uh, fully moved in and kind of living the life, as it were, in, in my new uh, place in Texas. So I got up at 4 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, done that twice in a row. I'm now, uh, well, now I can officially announce that I am running the New York City Marathon in November, on November 7th to be exact, so a couple weeks from, a couple months from tomorrow. It's the first Sunday in November for all of those who don't know. I did not know until I was uh, asked to run it by the charity group that I am raising money for, Rally Cap Sports. So now I have to train for that marathon. So which means I and you know living in Texas, Texas is very hot if you are not aware. And I want to run out of the heat because I sweat more than I've, I think anyone I've ever seen sweat in my entire life. So I want to get out of the process of actively just sweating my ass off all over the place and looking like I'm disgusting and you know all those other things that kind of come along with it and and you know honestly just you know like getting out of the heat in general. So the only way to really do that is to run when it's kind of cold outside, and the only time to run when it's kind of cold outside in Austin, Texas, is um, is in the morning. So I am now officially running in the morning twice a week, uh, extended runs. I ran nine miles earlier this week, nine miles today. I'm going to kick that up a little bit in the future. I need to kind of get it going and get my uh, you know overall stamina up, I would say. And, um, you know, cause I, I am a, just basically a nut, uh, knuckle dragger who can just pick heavy things up and put them down. And that's really my, been my own abil only ability my whole life. So kind of going to do the same thing I did with the fundraiser I was doing earlier in the year with the Murph. So just train, transforming my body, all that other stuff. So that's been an interesting thing to say the least, cause I've never really undertaken that amount of strain on my body before, which is, which is good because it, you know, it allows me to push myself and all those good things that come along with it. So anyways, uh, for today, I wanted to revisit one of my favorite posts I've ever done today. And I've been thinking about kind of waiting to do this one for a while. Like I, I knew it was like, I, I've known the quality of the post is good. And you know, I was, it was very interesting when I wrote it. This was written about now, oh, let's see, 15 months ago. So it's been a while. So well, you know, I haven't read it through in a couple months. So we'll see how. This is one of my posts I've actually read multiple times because I was actually pretty proud of it. And I was very angry when I wrote this post. I was very, very upset, as a lot of people were. It was written in April of last year. So you know, when everything was starting to get canceled because of the coronavirus and everything that was involved because of that. So kind of wanted to use that in order to make a broader point out of society. And I've mentioned it multiple times throughout basically every post sense, like the, the common theme of this book, just the power dynamic in our society and how it rests and how everything kind of works out itself throughout there. So uh, it, it is long, so I will, you know, kind of, you know, brace yourself for that. So I will not uh, waste my time on a blabbering intro anymore. So here we go. I can pinpoint the exact moment in time that I knew I was right. Saturday, April 4th, 2020 at 4.46 p.m. I was on the phone having a conversation with my mom. She asked me how I was feeling as she was pre pretty convinced I had the beer virus. 
It didn't kill me. Don't worry. It, I, I'm still doing this podcast, by the way. She said, I said I was fine, that I was feeling a lot better, and I had been feeling sick the whole week prior. But I thought she had meant something else. The night before, around midnight, I got an email from my university, which was strange because apparently the university put out the same announcement on social media eight hours earlier. I had not seen it. I had my phone basically turned off, and I have time limits on all notable social media apps that do evil things like get you addicted to them and steal your data to sell the software companies and feminine product manufacturers. My commencement had been canceled. They had moved it to an all-virtual format with, quote, something later, whatever the fuck that means, and now I know it officially means a graduation, quote, celebration that's happening in, two, in like a month, actually, from, you know, a week ago, so about three weeks now, to come in the summer when things had settled down, and that eventually got pushed out to this summer, so this is over a year ago, remember. The week prior to this, the college made every single one of my classes a pass-fail distinction. The actual grades didn't matter. Now, this was disappointing news, but the news itself was not the reason for the national emotional nosedive I was about to enter. To draw a comparison, I'll set up a scenario that may seem different, but has completely the same context. LeBron James and the decision in 2010. LeBron James had been the staple of Cleveland sports ever since he was a junior in high school. Some were saying it was the luckiest thing to happen to the city since the Browns won the NFL championship, hint, not the Super Bowl, in 1964 when he got drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2003. It was basically an act of divine intervention that we were able to get him. And that's what LeBron was to the city. A god. He was untouchable. He was us. He knew Cleveland. He'd grown up in Akron. He could empathize with us. He knew our pain. He knew how important it was that our community stuck together. But then the decision happened. In what has been considered the most emotionally enticing free agency period in sports history, LeBron James was considering leaving that community to take his play elsewhere. To finalize his decision, he set up a live television event to announce his intentions, with all proceeds going to the charity in the form of a donation to the Boys and Girls Club of Cleveland. About an hour after the event started, and in one of the biggest PR blunders in recent memory, LeBron spoke the infamous words, quote, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach and join the Miami Heat, end quote. Bedlam ensued. Drunk Cleveland fans stormed the streets and chucked beer bottles at televisions. Young professionals got sexually aroused by burning the King's jersey. Basketball legends like Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan criticized him for not being, quote, the man, referring to his choice to team up with fellow NBA superstars Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade instead of standing his ground and winning a title in Cleveland by himself. But one thing was constant throughout all of it. Disbelief. People, especially Clevelanders, were shocked at LeBron's actions, but not in the way that most would assume. Communities of people, the good ones at least, help to support each other. They want their own to win. The people from Cleveland wanted LeBron to succeed. Would they have wanted him to succeed with the Cavaliers? Of course they would have. But if LeBron had moved on, I guarantee you they would have gotten it over it a lot sooner and been much more supportive during his run in Miami. So, why the outrage? The reason for the outrage was not that LeBron left. It was the way he left that was the problem. If LeBron had done so quietly without the decision, without the anticipation, anticipation and the dramatics that came with it, the resounding clapback would have been much less severe. He fed into the drama of the situation, leading to a lot of promises from a lot of irrational people that he couldn't keep, mostly because he had made up his mind about going somewhere else. He fed the flames of his own hubris, unintentionally most likely, while failing to water down the expectations of those most loyal to him, and it slapped him in the face. LeBron lost touch with the people who he presided over, the subject of the king's kingdom. He didn't get enough touch points with the people to know how they may react. Was this LeBron's fault? It was, but I don't, th don't think it was intentional. Most rational people don't. LeBron James is, by and large, an exemplary citizen, although he's taken a lot of noted criticism the last couple months. He has never cheated on his wife, spends a lot of time with his kids, and gives money to numerous philanthropic causes, including money through his own foundations that have sent over 1,100 kids to college and built a school in Akron for underprivileged children. The decision was simply a, simply a single blunder in an otherwise pristine career of the, one of the most influential people to have ever walked the planet Earth. Others aren't so clean. Actually, check that. Most others aren't so clean. But we'll get to them later. Now back to my story. Like LeBron, my university pissed off the student body. The rulers upset those that they ruled over. We were hurt by their decisions, and rightly so. However, there is a large difference between the two that needs to be addressed. 
LeBron never lied to his fans. Never once did he say that he was doing one thing and then turned around and did another. He kept his options open. He didn't say the truth, but he didn't lie either. That cannot be said with the same with my university. For about a month prior, ever since the COVID-19 nuke was dropped and classes were moved virtual, the governing body of the university had stressed that commencement would be in person. They told us that no matter what, it would happen, and we would be the first to know the details. But it didn't. They lied. To be fair, they weren't working with imperfect. They were working with imperfect information. We all are, and we all were, especially at that time. However, that doesn't change the fact that they liberally misled students for over a month, promising things they knew they couldn't keep. They announced it over social media eight hours before they emailed the student body, making them 0 for 2 on their promises they said they would keep. And then came the embellishment. Oh, the embellishment. When we did get an email, they didn't apologize. Instead, we were told that our online commencement was a, quote, historic event, that Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, would be giving a glorified TED Talk over Skype from his living room somewhere in California, and we all would have the, quote, privilege to see it that we would all be involved in the planning of our, quote, something later, something that they had already promised us before, but then broke out at their leisure. And I can deliberately tell you in the last sentence, they did not at least ask me for opinion. I didn't get an email or anything like that, so probably makes them over three at this point. What an amazingly convincing gold-sprayed piece of horseshit that was. Online commencement, when we were strictly promised an in-person one, was not, quote, historic. It was a cop-out. Tim Cook and Apple have a partnership with my university in which every freshman student gets an iPad. Quote, historic events sell a lot of iPads, if I had to guess. Also probably keeps enrollment pretty high. It wouldn't shock me if the, quote, historic event was then uploaded to YouTube or even shown to other universities that also had university partnerships with Apple, and there are a lot of them. The royalties both parties would collect per view on YouTube would probably be pretty tasteful. I know people that are starting jobs literally the day after we graduate. They're supposed to be actively involved in the planning, but the feasibility of that plan is skeptical, to put it mildly. Three bold-faced lies. But as long as they push more iPads, right? I'm not one to vent, but at the time I mentioned earlier, my mom relented to my anger and I unloaded an anti-establishment rant just to the right of, the Billy, of Billy Joe Armstrong and Kurt Cobain. And then, on Saturday, April 4th, 2020, at 4.46pm, the epiphany finally hit. The light bulb went off. Our ruling class is completely and utterly out of touch. They have no idea how the people who depend on them for guidance feel and think. Frankly, I don't think they want to. Now, when I'm saying the term, quote, ruling class, people automatically begin to think that I'm some kind of revolutionary activist who jerks off to pictures of Che Guevara and Vladimir Lenin on his wall. One, I don't. They're awful. Two, I'm not encouraging rebellion. Well, at least where a massive uprising of people overthrows the government occurs. That's not a very educated thing to do, in my opinion. When I say ruling class, we need to break down the definition. The definition for the word rule is, quote, a prescribed guide for conduct or action. The definition of the word class is, quote, a group sharing the same economic or social status. So the, quote, ruling class I'm referring to is the group of people that shape the conduct and actions that they deem acceptable in society. And for the most part, the way they think of and interact with the people that look to them for guidance is completely and utterly fucked. The ruling class not only comprises government, nor does it take one side of the political aisle or ideology. It comprises everybody who we look up to for opinion. Academia, businessmen, business mo fitness models, Hollywood, makeup vloggers, musicians, etc. Anyone who can largely influence decisions, and most of, most of them do it completely wrong. This comes in terms of a lot of forms, and the names are very familiar, mostly because the people are finally catching on to their bullshit and finally calling them on it. Lori Laughlin and her family. The Clintons. Kevin Plank. Some Bloombergs and Bidens and Bushes. Oh my. Al Gore, Jerry Buss's family, Al Davis. The list goes on and on. It's bipartisan, which is great. It means there's something we can actually fucking do about it and agree upon. But more on that later. One good thing about the coronavirus is that it is exposing the shit out of a lot of these people. Their intellectual superiority complexes and hubris are getting wrung out like a wet towel for all of us to see. And it's both disgusting and glorious to watch. This comes in a lot of forms, but one that sticks out to me, and thankfully lots of others, the most, was an Instagram video that went viral a couple of weeks ago before this, in, early, in I think March 2020. Gal Gadot, who plays Wonder Woman amid other characters, is one of the hottest names in Hollywood right now. She's stunningly beautiful and pretty talented, but she's also incredibly ignorant. In response to the coronavirus, Gal Gadot compiled an Instagram video, 
from her million dollar home in California with probably 87 COVID-19 test kits and ventilators standing by of celebrities also with their million dollar homes, COVID-19 test kits and ventilators singing John Lennon's famous song, Imagine. Knowing no end to her obvious superiority, Gal Gadot decided to hit a lot of us normal people with a flying knee to the face the full dose of it. In the middle of the biggest public health crisis in over a century, one where people's compromised relatives and grandparents were becoming sick and dying in mass all over the world, she thought it would be inspiring to open the video with the first line, quote, imagine there's no heaven. Like, what in the f actual fuck is wrong with you people? Wait, I'll tell you. They're out of touch. Completely. I'm not saying Gal Gadot or any of the people involved are intrinsically bad people. Most likely they're not. But that doesn't excuse them for their ignorance. Another coronavirus example that may surprise you, well, actually not now, it, it, a lot of this is coming to light now, being out of touch with reality may surprise you. Dr. Anthony Fauci. This one is bound to get a lot of people to exit out of the article, especially ones that agree with the main establishment kind of narrative about the coronavirus and its origins and the actually actions that have come with dealing with the situation in the United States, but bear with me. Dr. Fauci, more accurately, this says is, but it was at the moment, arguably the second most powerful person not only in the country, but in the world, behind only the President of the United States. He has spent more than 50 years studying medicine and, along with the, his expert, term of do, expert team of doctors, has led America rather efficiently. Big compliment from me. I hate on the government for almost everything, at least at the time. And this has gotten much worse, by the way. So this is actually really, really interesting to read this now through this unprecedented crisis. Dr. Fauci seems like a very good and reasonable man doing an incredible civic duty. He will most definitely, hopefully along with the staff, win the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian honor bestowed by the government. But that's not the issue. It does not lie in the medical realm at all, actually. Dr. Fauci was on a myriad of news programs the week before I wrote this in April 2020, talking about the pandemic and its effect of the shutdown of the American economy. This is a big problem. The service industry and small businesses are getting bludgeoned. Six million people and counting have filed for unemployment. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JPMorgan Chase and one of the smartest business people of the last century, predicted in his annual shareholder letter a drop in annual GDP of 35%, equivalent to just under $7.5 trillion in lost value, and national unemployment of 14%, <coughs> a full 4% higher than the Great Recession, you know, when the world's banking systems almost tank the world into anarchy. When translated into the current labor force in the United States as of March 2020, that equates to 22.81 million people out of work, and this got much worse. It was actually around 40 million. Concerned yet? Dr. Fauci, however, basically disregarded these problems. He mandated a complete national shutdown of the United States for potentially months, and this actually happened. We need to stop the coronavirus, and we have basically stopped the coronavirus by this point. The pandemic is virtually over. At that point, we need to listen to Dr. Fauci, Dr. Deborah Burks, and their staff. But we also needed to acknowledge the reality of their ignorance of this massive elephant in the room. Dr. Fauci doesn't know the consequences because it's not his job to know the consequences. And that's a problem. But it gets worse when you look at the potential effects of his decision-making beyond the economy. How many of you know that middle-class life expectancy has fallen for three years in a row? And contrasting that, how many of you knew before that period of three years it hadn't decreased for a hundred years in a row? And that the adverse effects affected more men than women? Probably not a lot of you. It doesn't get talked about much. It's neither popular nor hot-takey enough. But there's a pretty distinct reason for why that effect is happening. Men don't do well when we're forced to be idle. We eat bad foods, drink alcohol, masturbate, smoke weed, and play video games. Not very productive activities unless you have a good relationship with a sperm bank. We need action. We need to do something. Women are much better at keeping themselves busy than men, in my opinion. This phenomenon is especially prevalent to middle-class men, and for another reason. Their wages are falling, in large part because of a loss of jobs and labor becoming cheaper in the United States. When men are idle and poor, that can explain the next step in this horrific process. Depression. Depression, and mental health in general, have bad consequences when left unchecked. These consequences have led to the decline in life expectancy because of two reasons drug overdoses, and suicides. They've spiked in all categories, but in this category most alarmingly. This means more families without stable income, even if their spouses do work, and a parental figure removed from the household in an incredibly horrifying way. Not good. Not good at all. Dr. Fauci doesn't recognize this. Neither do a lot of the doctors working on this problem. If we remove both income and purpose for the middle and lower classes in mass, particularly men, for extended periods of time, 
the results were disastrous. The effect on the family and mental health would be nothing short of catastrophic. So how about in business? Let's start with big tech, an industry that's dominated by companies such as Amazon, Facebook, and Google. You might have heard of them before. But in reality, they shouldn't be called big tech. They should be called big marketing. Maybe because, I don't know, they steal your data and personal information like mad and sell it to other companies who then sell you product. They look through your webcam, tap your cells, hack your computers, and listen to your conversations, even when you're not on the phone. But as long as they have a plan to combat climate, climate change and install equity programs in corporate boardrooms, right? How about ride-sharing? Uber and Lyft, they're the future. Yeah, maybe of workforce exploitation. Did you know that Uber is the second largest employer of the world, only behind Walmart and right ahead of the Chinese National Petroleum Company? Good, because that's wrong, according to Uber. They don't want you to say that. Their leadership doesn't account their 1.5 to 2.5 million drivers, estimated according to the rideshareguy.com, as employees, mostly to get them out of paying benefits and paying taxes on them. A lot of Uber drivers have said that they end up paying Uber for their labor due to their difference among other factors. They're probably right, they just don't want you to say that. Their CEO got paid $45 million last year for the fact that he wouldn't. Let's keep going. Did you know that China makes it at or above 95% of some of our medical and pharmaceutical equipment, most importantly generic drugs? Probably not, because it's cheaper to make there. They're just arguing for better prices for you, right? Or that the NBA was, quote, realistically considering cancel the season, canceling the season within the next two weeks last year? Mostly because the NBA owned... Chinese League got canceled when the country got hit with the epidemic early on, and they grabbed Commissioner Adam Silver and the league by the balls and demanded them to obey. But hey, if their sports can't play, ours shouldn't be allowed to either, according to them. They'd prefer to take their and their, both their and their, our balls and go home, and make us bow to them in the process. As Americans, we need to wake up and deal with this problem. It will continue to fester, persist, and worsen if we don't. Some of those most influential members of our ruling class are running rampant, with no signs of stopping. Like I said before, this is not a partisan argument, mostly because when you break it down to nuts and bolts, partisanship doesn't exist anymore. It's inefficient, and our elites have realized that. Their primary job now is to make us feel that it's still two sides in the left and right, not two sides up and down, because that would implicate them all immediately. They'd rather peddle the left versus right myth instead. It works better for them. This is not, not a call to victimhood. I want to make that abundantly clear. This is merely an observation of a problem that I think is real and that affects a lot of people. My intention with this podcast is not to demonize the ruling class. There are some good people with good intentions that reside in it. I simply want to present this argument so we can read it, learn from it, and hopefully drag both parties to the see, see the side of the other in order to better our relationship. We, we, will, we will all suffer if we don't. We're all Americans. We're bonded together by country and the values that we hold. That ideal has been lost partially because of lack of awareness by our ruling class, and that needs to change immediately. I want nothing more to see our country work in unison. We need to disagree and fight because conflict makes us stronger, but we also need to have that underlying sense of unity or we will be destroyed. What I am proposing is that people see these trends. If you're a part of the problem, consider my thoughts and try to work to fix it. If you're not, then be a part of the solution. Try to right the ship. The article is broken up into four sections, each explaining a sequential step in the slippery slope with what my opinion is the end of how we can solve this problem, and I hope you take it as seriously as I do. Part 1. The Break-Off what is our essential question? Meaning, what binds us together as Americans? It's the biggest question we can currently ask ourselves as a nation, mostly because I don't think it's been asked with much sincerity in a while. Throw in the past five years being the most politically polarized time since the 1960s, and this isn't even counting the later things of 2020, such as George Floyd, the riots, the protests, the hysteria, the stealing of the, the January 6th, all this other stuff, not the stealing of election, but the, the thing, I mean, all the other, just, I mean, you guys know the story. And that will further emphasize it. For most of our country's existence, especially since the Emancipation Proclamation, women's suffrage, and the Civil Rights Movement, I would argue that the essential question was meritocracy. How hard are you willing to work for what you want? How much are you willing to sacrifice? That question defined the American dream. You come up, work hard, and you will be rewarded. It was a binary equation. Do X and you get Y. 
This was a great idea and a great essential question to bind us all together. It didn't discriminate by anything we couldn't control or wasn't in the place to be questioned in the first place, skin color, religion, etc. It was awesome. It's a shame to say that it's, it's not in this place anymore. Meritocracy as we knew it is a myth. It's a relic of a time gone by. Why? In fact, I'm not even sure it existed in the first place. Well, because most people who use meritocracy the best, and credit to them, realize that other people could just as easily knock them off their pedestal by kicking their ass and doing what they did better than them. So they found a new way to cement their status in the city on the hill. They began to form a new essential question. But before we get to that, let's further on this point. I call this point the break-off, the separation between the ruling class of America and the rest of the people they rule over. The point of where most of the ruling class of our country decided collectively that they were going to form a new essential question, and that anyone who asked the old one was to be eviscerated for not following in their footsteps like a moth to the flame. The Greek philosopher Aristotle came up with a lot of cool shit. He was awesome too. However, perhaps his greatest contribution to modern thought is his concept of the three modes of persuasion, ethos, logos, and pathos. And since America is heavily based, although derivatively so, off of ancient Greek philosophy, you see this everywhere. And since the ruling class are indeed um, the ruling class, this is pretty damn important. Ethos is an appeal to authority or credibility of the presenter. It is based on how well the presenter convinces the audience that the presenter is qualified to do or speak on a subject. Pathos is the appeal to the audience's emotions. It is based on how well the presenter can control or influence the range of the emotions the audience feels. Logos is an appeal to the logic of the presenter. It is based on how well the presenter convinces the audiences that the presenter knows facts and figures, among other things, to provide proof for their claim. Up until the break-off, the main claims to the original essential question of America were ethos and pathos. Logic and credibility drove things. If you were able to logically do or say something, that in turn gave you credibility to influence others. This is the essence of meritocracy. If you are able to back up what you say, you will be rewarded with credibility. Rinse and repeat. Pathos was an influence, of course, but it was not primary. Emotions are important, as I've stated before. They innately drive all of us, but they are primal. Ethos and pathos keep the train from going off the rails. In their excellent book, The Coddling of the American Mind, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt and First Amendment lawyer Greg Lukianoff derive what they call, quote, the three untruths about American society, especially pertaining to Generation Z college students. The second untruth is what they call the truth of emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. To prove their point, they go into detail on things like cognitive behavioral therapy, ideological vetting, and microaggressions, all things that are proven by data and scientific research cited within the book to be detrimental to all people, but especially the young adults of our society. Okay, now back to the new essential question. The ruling class of America's new essential question is not meritocracy. It has been replaced by something far more insidious, something that Haidt, Lukianoff, and many others, who, mind you, are in the good part of the ruling class, have warned us about. Virtue. How virtuous are you? That is the new essential question proposed by the ruling class of our society. The definition of virtue is, quote, moral excellence, goodness, righteousness, conformity of one's life and conduct to moral and ethical principles, uprightness, restitute, a good or admirable quality or property, end quote. Oh, and one more really important one, which I'll get to later. However, there's a red flag that should be going up. Actually, fuck that, shooting up. There is a question that needs to be asked about this essential question, one that hasn't been asked and one that needs to be asked. What defines virtue, exactly? Actually, what defines any of this? Nothing, at least definitively. It's all arbitrary. All of it. Which means the power of virtue is in the hands of the people with the most influence. And the people with the most influence in this country are the ruling class. What they say goes, and what conflicts with that does not go. I wrote about this willful ignorance in my post about the four don'ts. In summary, the four don'ts are simply the four things you shouldn't do in order to live a good life and not suck as a person, in my opinion. The second don't was, wait for it, don't be ignorant. It referred to keeping an open mind and not to be closed off to any perspective just because it isn't shared by you. Learning to meet somewhere in the middle and having productive conversations. When you apply the second don't, it allows you to meet people where they are and learn to coexist with them. Warm and fuzzy shit like that. The new essential question of virtue is in direct violation of the second don't. Instead of meeting somewhere in the middle, the people who get to decide what is virtuous in society, the ruling class, to their vast influence and overall creative power, condemn 
anything that doesn't keep them in their place from all sides of the political aisle and any other perspectives they take. Further, back to the last part of virtue definition that I left out. The last definition of virtue, according to the dictionary, is, quote, effective force, power, or potency, end quote. And there's the mic drop. There's the real key in all of this. If the key to answering the new essential question of virtue is being morally excellent, what is the best way to enforce that virtue? The answer is right there in the definition. Through force, power, potency. We don't live in a society of martial law, which is a good thing. However, you can see this through different vectors of society all the time. People get viciously scorned on social media for posting something that is in, not in the favor of the person within the ruling class. The ruling class can offer you solutions, sure, but only if you obey them. Why? Because America is no longer based on merit. It is based on virtue. People crawling over one another like rats in a sewer in order to pr prove how virtuistic they are to the ruling class. It's disgusting to watch and ugly to look at. What's worse is that people in positions of power enable this because of their willful ignorance in violation of the second don't. The ruling class is totally out of touch. People just don't see it. Over time, will people begin to see this as the new people will begin to see this as the new norm, what society is inherently built on. It's widely regarded that people emulate their parents and older, older siblings while growing up, because they are the models that they are exposed to in order to shape their views on life. A ruling class is no different. People want to become like them. They want to become people of influence. The ruling class knows this and is happy about that. So what they do is to try to create more people who constantly chase after them, knowing damn well that they will never catch them in the first place, most likely. An example of this in action is referring to my experience that I mentioned in my intro. My university's response to the coronavirus situation was not only instilled in their ignorance about our graduation, but also through another vehicle, pass-fail grades. For those unfamiliar with the subject, a pass-fail grade is simply choosing to give a student either a passing grade or a failing grade by crossing a certain threshold versus the grade that they would otherwise earn. No addition or subtraction would come to your GPA if you passed. Why did my university do this? Well, because it was the morally correct thing to do, obviously. There are people in different and adverse circumstances. Some have it harder than others, according to the electorate of my university. They felt the need to make people feel good. They wanted to prove their virtue. But you know what that is? Garbage. Hot fucking garbage. And why is it garbage? Because it's inherently hypocritical. Why? Because let me think. What if some people want a grade? What if they worked really hard, studied longer, sacrificed more, put more value on their grades than on being lazy? Where's their virtue? Hint, it's not there. And it never will be, because the ruling class does not care. How do we know? Because they're the ones implementing the policy in the first place. If my university gave a damn about student achievement and commitment to higher excellence, they would have kept everything as is. That does not mean that they cannot adjust to their circumstances, as they are extraordinary. But that doesn't mean that they can demean the students that work so hard to put themselves in the position. No position is perfect, but that is the most just. Why? Because people can choose. They have a right to choose. In my situation, the threshold to pass a class was a 70%, or a C-. If a C is widely regarded as average, then a C- is below average. So in order to keep their virtue, and therefore their power, the university decided to lower the standard on grading in order to maintain their moral conscience. They just had to demean and marginalize the work of every other student in the entire university to do it. Fighting marginalization with marginalization. An interesting concept. I should remind you that the third don't is don't be a hypocrite. Oh yeah, they're violating that one too. The break-off is a crucial point in discussing our ruling class ignorance. In exploring the break-off in greater detail, we can learn to come up with an essential question that defines us all and work towards progressing that so we can all start playing on the same team once more. The problem? The ruling class doesn't want that to happen. They'd rather stay apart from the rest of us. It's better for them that way. Part 2. The Separation Quote, You gotta get to the Gemba, Samo. That's the way you solve things. You gotta get to the Gemba. I've talked about my dad in here before, but for the purpose of this argument, I think it's justified to give a little more background. My dad was born in 1970 in Elyria, Ohio, 
a small farming and manufacturing town outside of Cleveland. He was the youngest of five siblings, growing up with three sisters and a brother. His father, my grandpa, was an aircraft controller who began to work at the age of 12 in order to support his family. He eventually got laid off by President Reagan along with several thousand other air traffic controllers in the early 1980s during their union strike. In the years that followed, he worked up to three jobs at a time for up to 18 hours a day, and they weren't always the prettiest. He carried golf bags along with his sons, my dad and uncle, washed cars, and cut grass. His mother, my grandma, was a stay-at-home mom as many women were back then, and with good reason. She had five kids to raise, including my dad, no small feat. When my grandpa got laid off, she went to work as a buyer for a local manufacturing company, an industry predominantly staffed by men. No small feat in 1980s working-class America, either. After a push from my grandma and borderline threats from my mother, my dad decided to go to college to study mechanical engineering after considering a career in the Navy. Due to the lack of financing from my grandpa's layoff, my dad stayed local for college in order to save money and actually finance his education. Now, if you hadn't heard, engineering school is really hard. And I mean really fucking hard. Especially for a first-generation college student who grew up in a farming town who supposedly got a whopping score of 9 on his reading ACT. Although I don't believe that shit for a second. My dad's probably the smartest person I've ever personally met in my life. In addition to being the smartest person I've ever met, my dad is also the hardest-working person I've ever seen. When he graduated from college, he was only one of three others to graduate with a degree in mechanical engineering out of an initial class of 150, a 2% graduation rate, and did it with Latin honors. He works like a dog. While I was growing up, he would pull 66-hour work weeks in the regular, not including travel, and still made time for me and my family. He missed a grand total of two of, a grand total of two of my high school football games. As soon as he got into the workforce, my dad kicked ass. He rose fast and eventually got promoted to the head of a hydraulic valve division at one of the largest engineering firms in the world. However, that meant he had to leave the traditional role of engineering he worked in design initially to take a role more oriented around leadership and management. However, my dad wanted the challenge, so he accepted. Even when he was promoted, my dad rose fast. He began to take on more responsibility. He managed multiple divisions at once and supervised the cohesion and the development of hundreds of people, many of which he trained himself. He traveled around the world to promote the business. China, Germany, England, Japan, Switzerland, South Korea. He was a big shot, and a lot of people knew it. But there was a difference between him and the other big shots. He never acted like one. He always remembered to get to the Gemba. The Gemba that I'm talking about is a reference to lean manufacturing, a production system that was perfected by the Japanese company Toyota, revolutionizing the industry forever. Gemba, according to the dictionary, means, quote, the actual place. Basically, where stuff happens, where the action is. I used to joke with my dad that he would use our dinner table as a daily group therapy session, constantly unloading all the stuff, including a lot of bullshits and that just ain't rights, on us. One of the biggest issues he spoke of was the lack of initiative by upper management to get to the Gemba. I didn't know what he meant until I took a shadow day at his job during my senior year of high school. I had no intention of going into the field of engineering, but my dad did his best to paint a broad picture so I could go get good exposure. He set me up with blocks of time for several members of his team, along with tours of every part of his facility. Going into the day, I thought it was simply going to be another office tour, and I want to leave, half an, uh, leave after about a half an hour stick my head into one of the hydraulic presses due to the amount of extreme boredom I would face. I'm not going to lie, there was some of that. But I took two bits of perspective from that day that, is, that have stuck with me since. And they both point out two flaws in what our ruling class perpetuates in the rest of society. The first came when I was touring the floor of the plant with my dad. For those who've never seen one, there are a couple things you need to understand. This place was busy, huge, and loud. Tens of thousands of square feet of World War-era machinery that pumped out small bits of manufactured iron and steel by the thousands, all manned by several factory workers, some of whom had worked at the plant for decades. There was also a lab nearby where my dad initially worked as a design engineer. They tested the parts before they sent them on the floor for mass assembly and production. But my dad didn't just walk around. He went up to each worker who passed, shook their hand or patted them on the back, and made conversation. He knew each one of them by name. He asked about their families. He introduced them to me and asked them to tell me about the specific machine they were working on and what value it added to the process. He then asked if they were experiencing any problems and, if so, what he could do to help fix them. He then said goodbye, told them to seek help if they needed it, and moved on to the next person we saw. The process repeated with the lab techs. That was what my dad's bullshits and the just ain't rights were about. My dad was sickened by the fact that when executives in the company, in his company, had, quote, made it, they didn't take the time to get to the Gemba, 
to walk the floor, make a connection with the people who actually did the work, and keep updating them where the work was actually done. Every week, my dad would make that trek twice. It didn't matter the length of time. What matters was that he put in the time. The second bit of perspective I got was just how the workers responded to my dad's constant presence. They didn't just like him. They revered him. Why? Well, my dad's a great guy, first off, in my opinion. But the main reason is this. No one else took the time to do what he did. Remember the lifetime finding to principle of value economics if you're a fan of the blog. The one that says you're defined by doing the little things that others aren't willing to do. Well, this is a great example of that in action. Because no one else in the upper hierarchy of the organization did what my dad did in terms of connecting with people further down the chain of command, no one was more respected in the firm as my dad. He got them. He met them where they were. If he didn't know, he did his best to understand. It's a shame to say that a large portion of the, those connections have been severed, mostly by our ruling class. Why? Because it's a threat to them. That connection has been lost because some members of the ruling class don't want people to pursue power for themselves or question the power that the ruling class possesses. Because the only surefire way to get people who want to knock you out of your way is to cut them out at the knees. Politicians are too easy to pick on. Would Hillary Clinton be the President of the United States if she didn't refer to the supporters of Donald Trump as, quote, a basket of deplorables and campaigned in, Michigan, in states in the Rust Belt, such as Michigan? The argument certainly could be made. Would the former President Trump be treated with less vitriol among influential figures in mainstream cable news if he didn't blindly castrate the, all the media all as, quote, fake news and constantly roast and scorn them over Twitter? Quite possibly. Could Bernie Sanders have made more appeal with corporations and individuals of mass wealth if he didn't yell and wave his hands about the billionaires every, at every rally he attended and threaten them with raising their taxes to 90-plus percent? Almost definitely. Although Bernie and Trump have an interesting dynamic to this. More on this later. So why on earth did they do this? Because it's how they separate. They place what Haidt and Lukianov call common enemy identity politics at the forefront. Common enemy identity politics takes place when one person of influence declares one group to be the enemy of another and seeks to destroy them in a zero-sum game. They're disgusting. Revolting, actually. And yet so many people in our ruling class do them only to further their own game. They label you an ister and ism and scold you until you become a pariah of the society that once promised your acceptance. Because, as it turns out, your acceptance doesn't mean anything to them. It only does if you make them feel good about themselves, or, even better, if it furthers their own personal gain. I can hear the cynics already. Well, Sam, why aren't you doing this in your, aren't you doing this in your article? Well, reader, I would argue not. Remember that, quote, we are all Americans paragraph in my intro. That feeds into the other kind of identity politics that Haidt and Lukianov propose in Coddling of the American Mind. That kind of identity politics is called common humanity identity politics. Common humanity identity politics takes place when you draw a circle around a relevant community and declare that we are, they are all something together. Some people that did this you may have heard of. Mahatma Gandhi, Dr. Martin Luther, Luther King, Nelson Mandela. Pretty good people. This is the strategy my dad took at work. He approached the situation as if they were all on the same team, because they were, instead of a bunch of fat cats in a high castle telling people how to do what they how to do, telling them what to do. I'm not claiming to be Gandhi or Mandela, but I am claiming that we need to follow in their example. That is what this article is, and this podcast is, a call to common humanity instead of the common enemy. Unfortunately, common enemy seems to be the dominant force in our society today, and it's incentivized by members of our ruling class. Why? Well, because common enemy identity politics are easier. When you can form a small tribe to attack another tribe, that automatically defines the lines of what team you're playing for. When you try to accept all who think differently than you, it's bound to cause some issues. The ruling class mostly just prefers their team to be of them, and the other team to be the people they rule over. It's really hard to get a humongous group of people to all think one way. A lot of the time, it ends, bad it ends badly. Bear Stearns, Enron, Nazi Germany, yeah, not good. But when it works, man, is it powerful. The three men I named above are prime examples of the good that comes from confronting issues within a lens of common humanity. When it works, it works really well. When it doesn't, it fails horrifically. That fear is a good, per good portion of why the other identity politics is so popular. Like I've claimed before, we all have an innate sense to run from what we cannot see. This is how the separation has happened. The divide between our ruling class and those whom they rule over has been solidified by games of petty common enemy identity politics from all ranges of identity itself. 
Because when our rulers, our influencers, think this way, we are naturally swayed into imitating them. However, the question remains, why do we let this happen? How can the non-ruling class consistently stand for this? Isn't somebody going to call this out eventually? Well, there are people that do, certainly. There are plenty of examples of them. The problem is that the new essential question of virtue that devolves into common enemy identity politics has created not just a new way that rulers and the people they rule over interact, but it's solidified into something more. It's created an entirely new way of life, one that arguably hasn't been seen since the 1960s in the counterculture that came with it. If the separation of the ruling class and those they rule over has occurred, only one thing remains for them to solidify their place. Part 3. The Subversion As we've seen, the ruling class of our country has taken their influence and abused it, rewriting a new essential question of America and separating from the rest of us through cheap common enemy identity politics. Now, the only thing left for them to do is stay there, to achieve constant domination to keep their power. They use two main tools to do this, wokeness and microaggressions. You cannot have microaggressions without wokeness, so we'll start with the latter. Since there's no definition for wokeness, at least not in this context, and if there, you want my definition of it, there's actually a post in my blog uh, a couple weeks later on this. I think I'm going to be doing that podcast very soon, actually. We're ditching our friend Miriam Webster and fooling around with his degenerate cousin, Urban Dictionary. According to Urban Dictionary, the definition for wokeness is, quote, self-righteousness masquerading as enlightenment. I'd add another definition, but I don't need to. That's about as concrete as you can get. Wait. Doesn't the word righteousness sound familiar? Well done, reader, and listener in this case. It should. Righteousness was in the definition for virtue, the apex of this whole problem. You can see how virtue leads to wokeness. It's right there in the definition. A misplaced sense of virtue leads to common enemy identity politics, which then naturally leads to wokeness in order to enforce the first two steps in the cycle. Wokeness is pushed onto any and everyone who gets in the way of the ruling class in order to further divide the people they rule over. That way, not a lot of people can climb to the top and join them. The only way you can is if you obey them. But if you do that, are you really an equal? Establishing wokeness naturally leads to something called microaggressions, which are also explored by Haidt and Lukianov. The definition for the word microaggression is, quote, a brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavior, or environmental indig indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative prejudicial slights and insults towards any group, particularly culturally marginalized groups, end quote. Okay, that was long and it had a bit of big words, so I'll simplify it. This is the whole getting offended by everything thing that everyone talks about. I'd say it's overblown, but it's really not. I know because I'm ground zero. Insert someone yelling at me because they're experiencing microaggression. The colleges and universities of America. I'll set up an example for, to show you for how this stuff can spiral out of control, but this is an example of a non-microaggression. I can show you the opposite side later. This past football season, I was attending a big game on Senior Day. This is a tradition where the families of the senior football players get to come onto the field and enjoy the festivities of their sons completing their careers as collegiate football players the last time they play on their home field. I was walking to my seat when I rounded the curb and saw a bunch of parents standing by, including an older black lady wearing the jersey of her son who was a senior. Her son was a really good football player, but I also thought he was really funny on social media and overall a good person. I had been following him for a couple years and he seemed like a really cool dude. So I went up to her and asked if she was his player's mother. She said yes, and I responded, quote, You raised a really good one, ma'am. He's a baller and he conducts himself very well. I like the way he acts. We need more people like him. Congratulations on your guy's big day. The lady was very nice and said thank you. Chatted with me for about 20 more seconds and then we went our separate ways. At face value, that sounds like a decent conversation that you could have had with just about anybody. This woman doesn't, didn't microaggress. Frankly, I don't think she cared once I left. Now, if the woman had microaggressed, it probably would have sounded something like this. Are you telling me that my son is a good football, just a good, is good football player? That he shouldn't conduct himself in that fashion? That black people as a whole aren't conduct, good at conducting themselves? This is the biggest day of his life, and he won't achieve more? How dare you? Then she probably slapped me across the face, called me an isterism, and I'd leave ashamed of doing nothing shameful at all. That's what wokeness and microaggressions do. 
that make you walk on eggshells. Believe it or not, I was actually nervous to go over there and make conversation with this woman before I did it. I didn't know how she would react. I was concerned about potentially offending her. Maybe she would take something the wrong way and say that I was insulting athletes, black people, or women, or athletic black women, or something of the like. Thankfully, that wasn't the case, but you can see how this erodes trust within, this can erode trust within society pretty fucking quick. Because this is not a way a healthy society should function. We should not have to fear going up to one another and complimenting each other. This is what civil people do in a society that is civilized. But when we're incensed to fight due to the fact that our ruling class is out of touch, these are the things that can happen. Tulsi Gabbard is a good example of how wild this process can get. Tulsi Gabbard was a congressional representative from the state of Hawaii, who was the second longest lasting rival to eventual nominee Joe Biden before Bernie Sanders bowed out of the running earlier, this, earlier that week. But you probably didn't know that. It didn't much, get much coverage. Tulsi Gabbard, at face value, seems like a very likable person. She's a veteran, speaks very well, and brings a unique perspective on a lot of issues such as foreign policy. It seems like she would appear to a lot of people, and in my opinion, she did. Appeal to a lot of people, I should say. In my opinion, she did. But then she attacked the mother of all dragons, Hillary Clinton. Tulsi Gabbard expressed her opinion on Hillary Clinton multiple times, being critical of her time as Secretary of State under President Obama, and even going to the point of calling her a warmonger. It was an aggressive move. But when you come at the mother of all dragons, you best not miss. The thing is, she didn't. She stated very clearly what she wanted to say, and she clearly had an effect on a lot of people because they agreed with her. A lot of people said that her claims held water. It's just that the ruling class did everything they could to silence her after she said them. Hillary Clinton called her a, quote, Russian asset and was backed by several prominent members of her own party in an act of shaming and vitriol. Coverage of her all but disappeared on major news networks, except for Fox News, believe it or not. The qualifications for debates became mysteriously fluid. She didn't debate a single time after the incident happened. Fellow presidential candidate Andrew Yang, who also has a valid claim for being silenced by politicians and their media colluders, put out a tweet that best described this incident. Quote, Someone asked me what the qualifications for the next debate would be. I responded, whatever Tulsi has, plus one. Tulsi Gabbard was never a prominent threat for most of the race. The ruling class just made sure to crush her into a fine powder to make sure that she could never end up being one. This can happen on the other side of the social spectrum as well. How many times have you heard or seen supporters of Republican politics or former President Trump get hostile over Facebook for you stating your belief on an issue when it's the opposite of what they believe? Believe it or not, the Republican Party didn't like President Trump at all when he started running. In fact, they were terrified of him. A good portion of them still are. He was a threat to them, an outsider, an unknown that could potentially knock them off their pedestals, kind of like the coronavirus in a weird and fucked up way. <coughs> However, when they realized that President Trump was really popular with a lot of people, and I mean really popular, particularly from where I grow up in uh, Ohio, they conveniently switched the narrative to preserve their po power and save face. They were just waiting him out. When he got out of office in 2020, there was a giant sigh of relief from a lot of people on both sides of the political aisle. They just don't want you to know because they want you to believe that they're playing for, you're playing for the same team. Big businesses do this all the time. How many large businesses in places like California and New York have waxed philosophical on woke issues, but have failed to take the issues that reside right in their backyard? Wildfire damage cost the state of California $400 billion in 2018. Their homeless population rose 16% last year to over 151,000 people. Some of their streets were so filthy with defecation that they were compared to sanitation levels in Kenya. How about the massive use of opiates? Rising rates of anxiety and depression among teenagers of Generation Z, especially among young women and girls. The whole middle-class life expectancy thing. They don't care. Why? Because it's not enough of a hot take for them. It doesn't give them the street cred that having an additional solar panel on their roof does. It's very bizarre. Wokeness only works when it's convenient for the person who is using its tactics. When it's not, they turn it against you. It's a dark and depressing game, and it must be stopped. But if our ruling class has anything to say about it, it won't happen. It's how they stay where they are, in their mock city on a hill. It's a threat to them, and they know it. How, will, how they will stay there is if these issues become permanent. If this constant infighting and petty issues get the best of us, we will all suffer at the ruling class's expense. 
we're already seeing fundamental changes in one way or in some way or another. They've just been pretty subtle. Some of you just may not have noticed them all that much. Have you noticed in the last couple of years that several things have been in place for a very long time that have flown into a massive scrutiny? Not necessarily things that are that permanent, but things that are traditional. Things that used to unite us as a country are now being subverted to divide us. Things that once appealed to common humanity are now being shredded and used as weapons to fight a common enemy. Each other. Congressman Dan Crenshaw has spoken on this phenomenon in numerous speaking engagements and has dedicated his last chapter in number one, his number one bestseller, Fortitude, to expressing it. It's not just a rephrasing and retelling of the traditions themselves, according to Crenshaw. It's a rephrasing and retelling of the American story. These are things that define us all as Americans. They unite us in a common humanity of being the same countrymen and being brothers and sisters by the for fourth fortune of everyone's birthright. Things like the Pledge of Allegiance, sporting events, the Star-Spangled Banner, movies and television, the American flag, your essential freedoms, the Bill of Rights, the military, even. These were not only bipartisan, they were central to who we are as a people. Now, thanks to intervention and destruction, and this destructive cycle of the new essential question of the ruling class, these have been ridden with the degradation and filth of meaningless conflict as well. This is a problem, a huge one, in fact, because when we as common humanity, a common people, are fighting about the things that form the spirit of a common humanity and common people, then what is common about us? The answer is simple. Nothing. There is nothing holding us together. It becomes unbound, cast aside. And what will take its place? Well, whoever creates the next best thing. Who is in the best position to create the next best thing? The people with the most influence and power. And who has the most influence and power? The ruling class. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is happening, and it's happening right now. It's a concept creep, a slippery slope, and we're gradually moving closer towards the subversion, something the ruling class relishes. How long will it be before the next step is taken, before someone goes, quote, over the edge and demands something irrational? Will it even be, quote, over the edge when the time comes? We're seeing this now with the coronavirus. I spent a whole podcast talking about it, so I'll spare you the details. But this whole situation is slightly resembling an anti-constitutional clusterfuck. Some states are instituting curfews enforced by law enforcement personnel in the military. This is still happening in Canada right now, believe it or not. There have been talks about rationing food. You can't even take your children to playgrounds. But all in the name of safety, right? However, instead of seeing this as an ominous road to hell, we can choose the other way. We can see it as a way to fix the issue. Like I said in my intro, this is not a call to victimhood. This is a call to point out the issues. It is up to us to fix them, because we can, and we should all want to. Part 4. America 2.0 Well, wasn't that a fucking stroll through a field of flowers? I know, I'm terrible. But now comes a spoonful of sugar. Here's how we can fix the bullshit and go about, up, go about upending the subversion. I'll start with the question that is puzzling to so many people, but one that is completely obvious to me. It took me a while to get there, but when they realize the answer, it hits you right in the face. Why in the fuck are young people so keen to liking Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump? Our parents, most of whom were in that sweet spot of age bracket to have voted after the 1960s, have mostly no idea how this is a thing. Our ruling class sure as hell don't. They're out of touch, remember? With the exception of George McGovern in the early 1970s, and even then they probably weren't of voting age and or cognizant of American politics, they've seen nothing like we've seen in the past five years in terms of political polarization. There have been some, quote, bad people, but nothing like what they've seen in the past half a decade. So why do we support them so passionately? The answer's simple. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are not members of the ruling class. They're both ideological outsiders. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are exactly the same person. They just think in exactly opposite directions. They're completely transparent in how they present themselves. They really don't give a fuck about anyone who doesn't like what, that they do so. Although I would argue that this is less true about Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, but I still think it's very, very powerful for the others. They both attack the established order on a daily basis. For Sanders, it's Wall Street and high income. For Trump, it's entrenched Washington and its mainstream media. They're both essentially populist candidates. They want massive change at the top of the hierarchy. 
Sanders campaigns for young people who identify for, as activists for social changes. Trump for the common and forgotten people of America. People who like Bernie Sanders see an impassioned revolutionary who wants to go about creating massive change to benefit the common man. People who hate Bernie Sanders see a crazy commie who screams and waves his arms like a fucking nutjob on national television. Oh, and did I mention the billionaires? People who like Donald Trump see a man who came from a high castle in a hot tub, Black Thought Voice, territory to fight for them against a detached establishment. People who hate Donald Trump see a raging fascist lunatic who is every istinism in the book, Kavfif. Oh, and the last thing that support the last thing that's more important, the members of the ruling class who came to support them are shitting themselves in fear. The Democratic National Committee has gone out of their way in two elections in a row in order to obliterate Bernie Sanders in some ways that some say are unfair and rigged. They're afraid that he might split the party in half and allow something to subvert them. He's a threat to their power. The Republican Party took two years to avoid actively trying to rid themselves of Donald Trump. It's only because he's holding them hostage to his tremendous right-leaning voter popularity that they haven't turned on him yet. And this is in the process of happening right now, by the way. They're afraid that he might change the face of the party entirely, and he has. He's a threat to their power. The reason that Sanders Trump, the tr Sanders Trump point needs to be made is that a good thing, it's a good thing for them to be in this arena. Why? It's us as voters doing our job. We can see that in the fear of the ruling class. We have sent them a clear message. Lose your touch with us? Fine. Here's what you get. Here's what we want. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. If the ruling class continues their reckless behavior, Sanders and Trump won't be the outlier. They will only be the beginning. More radical candidates will emerge, and we've already seen this. Polarization will get worse. We've seen this as well. The non-ruling class will get what they want. The ruling class will learn their lesson. It's just up to them whether they want to learn the easy way or the hard way. However, for the non-ruling class, this is a good thing. They hear you, loud and clear. Trust me, they do. Their fear won't be so wouldn't be so visible otherwise. That is the first step, letting them know that their behavior is unacceptable. And we can do this peacefully. We can vote. We can voice our opinions. We can tell Gal Gadot to shove her Instagram videos up her ass. We have our right to do so. We just have to use it constructively. And I'm happy to say that some of us have already done our part. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're doing it well, or in the most constructive fashion. As I highlighted earlier, we're playing right into the ruling class's hands. We're fighting amongst ourselves, not fighting the cause of the problem, their ruling class and their ignorance. The way they act is unacceptable, but we're turning that frustration upon ourselves. These actions are self-defeating. They only cause us to weaken our own power and enhance theirs. However, there's a solution. We need to appeal to a common humanity, not a common enemy. Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, and Nelson Mandela were able to change the world because they did this exact thing, like I mentioned earlier. It's very powerful when it's done the right way. That is where we need to start. Martin Luther King didn't use the words black and white aloud when he spoke about the people involved in the civil rights movement. He used the words brothers and sisters. Why? Because that appeals to a common humanity, a common identity. To solidify that common humanity, we need to formulate an essential question. What is that essential question? I have no fucking idea. It's very hard to create one because creating a common ground for 330 million people to stand upon is incredibly challenging, especially a time of such political polarization. But it needs to be done. We need to try. Is it, the simple, is it simply the original essential question of merit, meritocracy that needs to be resorted? Maybe. But maybe not. Mark Cuban... The entrepreneur and Shark Tank personality is not a member of the traditional ruling class, although I would say he's slipping more into this territory day by day. I believe he's one of the few that truly gets the members that aren't in it. He's been a phenomenal leader throughout the coronavirus crisis. Because of this, he's done an outrageous amount of media in the last two weeks, appearing on everything from mainstream news to the podcast to YouTube interviews. The last two weeks from this article, which is again in mid-April 2020. In these media appearances, Cuban has talked about a concept called America 2.0, his argument throughout all the media is that while this crisis is causing horrific effects on all fronts, there is always opportunity within every crisis. He believes that opportunity is vast, vast enough to reshape the country. One of his main points is that the aftermath of the, in, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, big businesses, especially banks, didn't learn their lesson when it came to responsibility of their co consumers. As a result, these non-learned lessons have gotten worse in a lot of ways, which has therefore continued to hurt the consumer. His solution is to call the consumers themselves. 
Don't let them get away with it. It must stop. No more. If they treat you like shit, throw them to the side. Let other companies who care to meet you where they are come and fill the gaps. That's the great thing about capitalism. That's what happens when we allow it to do what it's meant to. This can also be applicable to every setting that we want. We just have to come together to create it. We need to make our own way. Our ruling class isn't doing their jobs. Make them fix it. Make it so that if they don't, someone else will. Then they will truly become powerless. Then they will truly know fear. America 2.0 can happen. I believe it will happen. But only if we take the steps to ensure its destiny. And I'm looking forward to seeing you on the other side. So, that's my podcast for the day, guys. Long one today. So that was uh, just kind of wrote that a lot out of frustration, wrote that a lot out of anger, but I think there's a lot of, still a lot of good points to take from it, so I'll leave you to marinate with that. Enjoy your week. Open your mind. Own the day. Have a good one. I'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got the habit. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?